invite you to pray with me. And as we bow our heads to pray, reverence our hearts. In just a few moments at the end of this message, we're going to give an invitation. And as clearly as I know to do from Scripture, we're going to present the person and the work of Jesus Christ in this message. And at the end, during this time of response and invitation, if you are not absolutely convinced and have full assurance of your salvation, that you've come to a point in your life where you've repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, then we're going to invite you to come. And today, if you don't know him, that you can receive Christ as your Savior and find full assurance of your faith and know that your sins are forgiven, removed, and that you're made righteous and clean before your Creator, before your God. I invite you to pray with me. God, Father, we, we ask that you would now guide us through your word, that you would ground us in the doctrine of Christ, that you would grow us in faith, govern us with the presence and power of your Spirit. And may we depart this place as grateful worshipers going forth as your witnesses for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. At 8 a.m. on a Friday morning, a rather ordinary-looking man rode up an escalator out of a busy Washington, D.C. subway. And when he arrived at the top, he positioned himself against the wall, opened a case, and pulled out this old, aged-looking violin. The finish on it was pretty worn. In fact, in some places, it was worn down to the bare wood. He then turned the empty violin case around, placed it on the ground for people to drop in donations. And he began to play. And for the next 45 minutes, while 7,000 people busy passed by, hurrying on their way, he played classical music. A few people paused for a couple of seconds, smiling as if they were enjoying the sound, but no crowd ever formed around him. Everyone was busy going about their business, reading their newspapers, listening to their iPods, hustling off to work. But the music was really good, extremely precise. The musician, while he looked ordinary, nothing special, a long-sleeved black T-shirt, blue jeans, he had a Washington Nationals baseball hat on, and he looked like a normal guy, just kind of average. However, there was one passerby who commented, most people, when they play music, they don't really feel it, but not this guy. He plays with emotion. And if you listen closely, it only takes a couple of seconds to realize this guy is really good. And that's because that musician was not an ordinary man. He was not an ordinary musician at all. He was Joshua Bell, a 39-year-old world-renowned violinist, a virtuoso who plays in the most elite venues in the world. People pay high dollars to get tickets and respect him so much that during 
his concerts, they suppressed their coughs until intermission. That Friday morning, Mr. Bell was playing an exquisite Baroque type of music, and he was doing it on a 300-year-old Stradivarius violin worth an estimated $4.0 million. And so consider the scene. This is a true story. Some of the most beautiful music ever written, played on one of the finest instruments ever made by one of the most talented musicians to ever have lived, and yet no one really stopped to listen. No one paid much attention. They didn't realize who he was, and so they just passed him by. And I believe the same thing is true when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. Most of us are familiar with his stories. Most of us are familiar with things that he said, things that he did, and most of us here today believe they are true. However, in the hustle and bustle of work and family and friends and bills and fun, we too are prone to pass him by. Do you remember two sisters in the New Testament named Mary and Martha? Both Ladies were friends of Jesus. Martha is depicted as a hard worker, a perfectionist who is busy, busy, busy. And Mary is also a worker, but unlike her type A sister, feels compelled to hit pause and allow everything else in life to wait because Mary doesn't want to miss her opportunity to stop and listen to the music at the feet of Jesus and worship. And like Mary and Martha, I'm not sure we really know who Jesus is. In the remaining minutes, I'm going to do my best in answering this one question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 16. There is a text that addresses the identity of Christ. And so I invite you to read with me starting at verse 13 of Matthew chapter 16. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. So for two and a half years, Jesus has been mentoring his team of disciples, teaching them, questioning them, spending time training them. He's preparing them for the mission that he is about to entrust to them. And this is their final exam, a one question final. And the ultimate question that every person must also face, a question that he asks is a question that no one can escape or avoid. 
Jesus asks his disciples, who do, he begins with, who do men say that I am, but then more pointedly, who do you say that I am? And it's here in Caesarea Philippi that Peter boldly confesses, I'm going on the record, I want everyone to know that I believe that you are the Christ, son of the living God. That confession that Peter makes didn't just come out of the blue. Months earlier, Mark records that Jesus was with these men on the Sea of Galilee. And in chapter 4, a great windstorm arose and waves began to swell and begin to pound into the boat and spill over inside. And the little craft was in danger of sinking. And while all that's going on, Jesus is in the stern of the boat, asleep on a pillow. And they, panicking, they wake him, probably wanting him to do something, but not expecting him to do what he did. And in Mark 4, 39, it says that Jesus rebukes the wind. He told the sea to be still. To rebuke the wind is like a word that conveying discipline. It's like a dad who, or a mom who corrects a child in essence, Jesus rebukes the wind. He disciplines and he corrects the wind and he tells the sea, hush, be muzzled, peace. And there was an immediate calm. And in total amazement, dripping wet, those disciples turned to each other and asked one another, who is this guy? That even the winds and the waves obey his voice. Who is this man who who rebukes, who corrects the winds and the waves. In our text, Peter makes a similar confession. Matthew records something earlier. In chapter 15, this little boy, uh, he, he comes to Jesus and he offers his little sack lunch of dried fish and barley loaves. And Jesus had been teaching all day and there's a hungry multitude of people there to listen. And so having a desire to feed them, this little boy gives Jesus his sack lunch and Jesus receives that little gift and he prays over it and at his word that little sack lunch begins to multiply and over 5,000 people are fed a full meal. Again, something that Peter and the other disciples could have never imagined. And then in Matthew 15 verse 22 it says, after this is over, Jesus made them, his disciples, get into a boat and go to the other side while he remains behind to spend time alone in prayer. And later that night, his men are out in the middle of the sea, headed to the other side. It's about 3 a.m. in the morning, and the storm hits them. They've been in this situation before. The wind is contrary. It's acting up, and the fishing boats is recorded by Matthew as being tossed and thrown around by the waves of the sea. I believe that Jesus knew ahead of time. He knew in advance that this storm was coming at the very moment and minute that these disciples would be in the middle of this Sea of Galilee. And I would reiterate that Jesus made them get into the boat and get out there into the storm. And I believe that he put them there. I believe that Jesus put them in the middle of that storm. And in that storm, Jesus, while they are fearing for their very lives, Jesus decides to go for a walk on the sea. 
and they are terrified when they see something coming. They, they, the Bible says they think it's a ghost, and so Jesus calls out to them and tells them not to be afraid. He says, for it's me. Peter, hearing that voice, is encouraged with faith and trust, and he says, Lord, if that's you, then command me to come. And the others probably in the boat look at Peter as if he had lost his mind. And Jesus says, it's me. Come on, Peter. And you know the story. Peter begins to walk on the water to Jesus. And when he's almost there, the Bible says he begins to take his eyes off Jesus and begins focusing on the waves. And he starts to think, sink, think, and sink. And he cries out to the Lord, save me. And the Bible says that Jesus reaches out to him and raises him up. And the two of them step into the boat and the wind ceased. And the disciples are full of awe and wonder and they have this attitude of worship. And in Matthew 15, verse 33, they say to him, truly, you're the son of God. I believe the lesson there is he's revealing to them in all of these instances and many others, he's revealing to them who he is. Slowly, consistently, gradually, they're beginning to understand. He put them into a position on that sea to be tested. He knew the storm was coming. He made them get out there to reveal over and over again and to prove to them that he was the Son of God. The more that I walk with the Lord Jesus Christ and the more that I get to know him, I realize he knows in advance every storm that's coming into my life. And I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ knows every storm ahead of time that's about to come in your life. And all of these storms, all of these tests that confront us are tests teaching us about who he is. And he's faithful and he's worthy of our trust. When Jesus said to the disciples, it is I, do not be afraid. It's literally translated, take heart, I am, I am, I am. That designation is the same name that God gave to Moses when he called him. You remember when in Exodus chapters 5, 6, 7 in that, that section, when God calls Moses to go back to Egypt and to bring his people out of bondage, out of slavery, and Moses makes all kinds of excuses to the Lord. I, I, I don't, I'm not a good speaker. I don't know enough. I'm not qualified. Use somebody else. And God just consistently rebukes every excuse. And finally, one of the excuses, well, Lord, I, I don't even know your name. What, what do I say when they ask who you are and what your name is? The one who sent me. And do you remember God tells Moses when they ask my name, just say, I, my name is I am who I am. When you go to the Egyptians, just tell everyone, I am has sent you. That phrase, that name, I am, conveys God's greatness. That he's a creator, the ruler, the transcendent one, sovereign one, all-powerful one. It's the same name that Jesus is using for himself. Peter, come on, I am. It's me, I am. In John's gospel, Jesus 
uses that phrase repeatedly. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am the great shepherd. I am the gate. I am the resurrection and life. Jesus is saying to his disciples and he's saying to you and I, whatever you need in life, that's what I am. And in this text, when Peter finally confesses, you're the Christ, the Messiah, this deliverer, this anointed one, the son of the living God, truly divine, it was the result of several years of walking with Jesus and beginning to realize who he was. So who was he? Who was Jesus? I want to share a few of my thoughts from Scripture very quickly. Go through these. Jesus first was a real person. Jesus was a real man of human history. Do you know that all historians, secular and sacred, record details and events of his life? Jesus of Nazareth is a man who actually split time. Have you ever thought about that? That all history is measured by the birth of Jesus Christ? Before his birth is B.C., after his birth is A.D. What a man. What a man. The Bible provides additional detailed personal eyewitnesses accounts who offer additional details about what he said and what he did and who he was. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but all of the men who wrote the New Testament knew when they were writing, they may have had an idea that they were going to be killed for what they wrote and for what they said and because of their conviction, being certain about who Jesus was, and yet they wrote everything they wrote anyways. Have you ever thought about that? None of the writers of the New Testament made any money by what they wrote. None of them gained any power. None of them increased in fame. All of them present Jesus of Nazareth as a genuine, real man, a man they believed in and, like Peter, confessed him even unto their own deaths. He was a real man. He was an extraordinary man. Extraordinary. He said and did things that were not normal, things that no ordinary person would ever say or do, to make claims that he was one with God that God was his father, that no one could get to God but through him. Those were not ordinary proverbs or witty sayings. Rather, those are extraordinary claims asserting truths from an extraordinary man. He was a great teacher. The Bible repeatedly says that whenever Jesus spoke, whenever he taught, that everyone was astonished because he taught as one who had authority. Unlike their scribes who lacked authority, who had no punch, when people heard them teach, it was just bland and kind of irrelevant. But Jesus taught as one having authority in his hometown of Nazareth. The Bible says that all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Later, while teaching in Capernaum in a small fishing village, the Bible says after they heard Jesus teach, they were astonished. The Bible records many questioned among themselves, where did he get such things? Where did he acquire such wisdom? In Jerusalem, the Jewish religious leaders feared him because the crowds were so enthralled with his teaching. 
when he was 12 years old, already teaching in the temple. He claimed to his mother and father that he had to be about his father's business. And the Bible says that he amazed the religious leaders with his ability to rightly divide the scriptures at 12 years of age. No one was ever able to outwit him. No one was ever able to entrap him nor match his teaching. He was a great miracle man. Jesus did things no ordinary person ever did. He healed people of diseases and sicknesses. He made water instantly turn into wine. He told lame people who had been that way since birth to get up and walk, and they did. He brought sanity to the minds of those who were insane. He delivered those in bondage to evil spirits. He spoke and raised the dead and brought them back to life. Jesus stood on one occasion in front of the tomb of a man who had been dead four days, and he called his name. The Bible actually says he shouted the name, Lazarus. And that dead man heard his name and stood up and walked out of the tomb. Nobody did things like that ever. People were amazed. Jesus was a remarkable claimant. He made amazing claims. If you go back to the Lazarus account, before Jesus called him up and out of that tomb, the claim he made to Martha, the sister, was radical. Martha, your brother is going to rise again. And she says, Lord, I know that he will rise on some future day at the resurrection. But Jesus says, no, Martha, he's going to rise in like three or four minutes as soon as I call him. And he goes on to tell Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Not that I can just give him life. Martha, I am life. I am the giver of life. I'm the creator and the author of, of life. That's, that's an amazing claim. John says of Jesus, all things were made by him, not for him, and all things, and for him, and not everything that has been made was made nothing apart from him. Jesus' claims are unparalleled. One of my favorite sections in the New Testament is Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. And upon first reading that text, it looks like a, a lot of rules, and it could even read like moralistic teaching. Don't do this, and don't do that, and instead do this, and do that. However, it's far from just moralistic teaching and behavior modification. That's not the point at all. In fact, if you read it, Jesus is claiming in the Sermon on the Mount to be the giver of Israel's laws. And since he is the giver, he has the power and the right to interpret everyone, to correct wrong understandings and applications of the law. Repeatedly, he says, you heard it said this, but I say to you that. He's claiming to be the true legislator, the one who gave the laws. Consider what kind of man asks his friends, what do people say about me? And goes further and says to them, what do you say of me? And one of those friends says, you're the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus says, exactly. Bingo, you, you answered right. And he goes on to tell him that not only are you right, but my father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. 
This is the same man when asked by the leaders of the Jewish nation, are you the Christ? Jesus claims, yes, I am. And one day soon you will see me seated at the right hand of God. Such claims resulted in him being killed. He was hung on a cross and the Roman government placed a sign over his head. Do you remember it? It was a sign of mockery. This is Jesus, king of the Jews. They did so because he claimed to be a king. And not just a king, not just the king of Israel, but the king, the king of kings and lord of lords. All of this began at his birth. You remember when wise men were told to go find him? They said they were told that this infant, this newborn was to be a king. At Jesus' baptism, John the baptizer kept telling everyone, repent and be baptized for the kingdom of God is at hand. John understood the king had arrived and that he was about to be revealed. And when John first sees Jesus, he says, this is the one who I've been telling you about. This is the one who ranks above me because he was before me and I'm not worthy to loosen his sandals. This is the one that must increase and I must decrease. This is the king we've been waiting for. This is the king I've been declaring to you. Israel had no king for 600 years. In 700 BC, the northern tribes of Israel fell to the Persians. In 586 BC, the southern tribes of Israel fell to the Babylonians. And eventually the Persians destroyed the Babylonians and the Greeks eventually take over the Persians and eventually the Romans swallow up the Greeks. And for 600 years there was no king. The Davidic kingdom lay in ruins. There was no king. But during that time God's messengers, the prophets, kept preaching a message of hope. The Davidic kingdom one day will be restored. A king will come. A child will be born. A son will be given. And the government will be upon this king's shoulders. And this king, when he comes, will rule with perfect justice and with power and with righteousness. And God's spirit will be upon him. And he will turn people to worship God and God alone. What people? All peoples. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation will come to worship God through this king. And one day at the, the name of this king, the Bible says every knee in heaven and on earth and every knee below the earth is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that this king is Jesus to the glory of God the Father. Amen. And this king will reign for all eternity. Isaiah declared his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the increase of this king's government and of his peace, there will be no end. And this king will sit on the throne of David and he shall reign over all kingdoms to establish them and to uphold them with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. There'll be no end. No end to the increase of his government and rule. And I love Handel's Messiah, right? And he shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. He shall reign forever and ever. Hallelujah. Peter's confession came only 
after 30 months of walking with Jesus. It didn't come out of the blue. This confession was not a lucky guess. It was the result of seeing Jesus perform miracles and raise the dead and calm storms and rebuke winds and waves and hearing Jesus preach and teach and making divine claims. He came to understand that Jesus was more than a man. He was more than a historical figure. He was more than a great preacher, more than a great teacher. He was more than a miracle worker. Peter comes to confess because he realizes that Jesus was the Son of God. Yes, a real man, totally human in every way, one who hungered and thirsted and grew tired and had to sleep and had to get dressed and one who wept when he was sad, one who was subject to every temptation that you and I could ever face, just like us, but in his humanity he never sinned. And when he died, he really died. He was nailed to a cross, and his blood was poured out, and his life ended. His brain ceased, his heart quit, his lungs failed. But Peter also knew that Jesus was fully God. He was the creator, the great I am. Jesus was God, and simultaneously he had a relationship with God. It's referred to as a tri-unity that existed between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, all three distinct, three different persons of the triune Godhead, but all three are only one God. Peter heard Jesus. Jesus affirmed there was only one God. Jesus said that he was God, that his father was God. Peter heard Jesus say that the Holy Spirit is God, that he and his father and the Holy Spirit were one, not the same person, but distinct, yet all working together in a unified relationship. The Trinity. Come to the realization there's no contradiction in the Trinity. Instead, there is more about God that our finite minds can grasp and understand. So, how will the king accomplish this kingdom? How will he establish a rule and a reign that will have no end? Well, the Bible makes it clear that this king will be slaughtered. He'll be slaughtered. Isaiah 53, this prophet foretells what will happen to this king, a lamb who will be slaughtered to take away the sins of the world. The idea of a lamb being offered to take away sin was very familiar to the Jews. But John takes that idea, that familiar idea, and he applies it to Jesus. Once a lamb was offered to God, It became a sacrifice for sin, and his throat was cut, and it would bleed to death. In Genesis, after Adam and Eve decided to reject God's authority over them and chose to live their lives independently from God, that sinful decision and choice cut them off from the source of life. Once they sin, they lost access and fellowship with God. They were removed from the tree of life, removed from God's presence. And their sin, their disobedience resulted in death. And death's penalty demanded a payment. And purely because of God's mercy, God allowed and established a substitute. 
Instead of Adam and Eve dying for their sins, the life of an animal was offered as a sacrifice. Its blood was shed as a payment for their sins. One of the clearest pictures that you find in the Bible that really captures a lamb being slayed for sin and to remove death was in the Exodus leading up to it through the plagues. The last sign, do you remember? Before God's people were finally freed from slavery, occurred on the night of the first Passover. The Hebrew people were instructed by God to take a lamb without spot, without blemish, and to slit its throat, to shed the blood. And after they would feast on the meat of the lamb, some of the blood was taken and smeared on the entry posts of their homes. And later that night, as the death angel passed through Egypt, that angel would see the blood and the family would be protected and saved from death. The point is the lamb died and the family hid behind its blood and were saved. God didn't save the Hebrew people because they were less sinful than the Egyptians. God didn't save the Hebrew people because they were less deserving of death. God saved them because a lamb had died in their place. Peter eventually came to realize what John the baptizer knew, that this perfect, sinless Messiah, this Son of God would die a bloody, violent death, and that blood would, be, would provide a payment for our sins. It would satisfy God's holy wrath, making a way available for our sins to be forgiven. And so Jesus died. He voluntarily offered himself as that payment for your sins and for mine. He died in our place that we might be saved. And after he died and was buried, he rose again, making all of his claims reliable and sure. The Bible clearly asserts that Jesus' resurrection from the dead is a historical claim. It's not just a religious claim. The resurrection of Jesus Christ certainly has religious implications, but it's more than a religious claim. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was a historical claim. Because if Jesus did not historically rise from the dead, if his resurrection was not a factual event, then as Paul writes to the Corinthians then the gospel message is a joke. Our faith is in vain, and we as followers of Jesus Christ are to be pitied. If there was no real, factual, historical resurrection of Christ, who do you say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? There is not a more important question in your life that you will ever face. Do you believe that historically Jesus was raised from the dead? That Jesus was a real man, but he was also fully God? That he lived a sinless, perfect life and he died on the cross for your sins? 
that he went through a gory, bloody, violent death for you? And after he died on the cross and he was buried, that he historically was raised from the dead. That is the gospel. That is who Jesus is. And my question is, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you really know him? Or is your knowledge of Jesus just about stories and facts? Bible stories, maybe Bible truths that you were raised to believe ever since you were a little kid, but that's different than really knowing him. Are you taking time like Mary to sit at his feet, to listen to his words, to worship him, to to abide in him? I'm going to say to you, if you're not doing that, you don't really know him. I'm not saying you're not saved, but you'll never really know Jesus until you get still and you sit at his feet and you take time to listen to the music. You'll never really know him. Jesus said, I am the true vine and you are the branches. And it's only as you abide in me that my life will flow through you. Sitting at his feet, abiding in him, spending time listening to him speak. Hillcrest, since Jesus died for us, my word to you is, then let's us live for him. Since he died for us, let's live for him. Let's live for him. I invite you to pray with me as Don and the musicians come.